Good evening. I was warned. I looked at my watch before the service started and I realised it was running 10 minutes slow. So I was told to watch that clock and forget about my watch. It's lovely to be with you this evening. And I have two scripture readings that I would like just to draw your attention to this evening. The first one is found in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, commencing to read from verse 11. Perhaps we'll start from verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist about with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then one other reading is found in Second Peter chapter 3, commencing to read from verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, we be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. I want to focus on Ephesians chapter 6 and Paul's exhortation to put on the whole armor 
of God. But I also want us to keep in mind that latter part of the verse in Peter's epistle that we have read, which asks the question, what manner of persons ought we to be? Paul, writing to the Ephesians, is writing from a prison cell. The epistle to the Ephesians is classed as with some other epistles as prison epistles. He is writing to the church. He's not writing to the world. He's not writing to the multitudes. He's writing to believers, those who have had a personal experience with Jesus Christ. And he's interested in them. He's concerned for them. It's not a case for Paul as out of sight, out of mind. But as he thinks of the church at Ephesus, and as he speaks and makes reference in his epistle, that they are before him often in his thoughts and also in his prayers. For Paul is writing to a church, I believe that we could truthfully say he has pastored. He, over a period of years, over several periods, has taken up the responsibility of addressing the congregation, of expounding to them the words of God, revealing to them the understanding that they need to understand what God is saying in his word. And as he puts pen, as we term it to paper, or parchment, he's writing with emotion, with feeling. He's visualizing, he's seeing the church at Ephesus. He's seeing the leadership. He's seeing their faces before him. He's thinking of the times that he has spent with the leadership, that he has ministered to them, that he has encouraged them, that he's helped them along the way and prepared them for the task of leadership of the church. He's thinking of the congregation, from the youngest to the oldest. His face, their faces are coming before him. And as he writes, he is writing with them in mind. But perhaps before we go a little further, we could fill in a little background information as to how Paul came to be involved with the church at Ephesus. We are told in Acts chapter 18 that Paul is found in Corinth, and there he makes contact with Aquila and Priscilla. They come from Italy because Claudius has commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. They find themselves at Corinth, and they are tent makers by trade. That's their business. It's Paul's profession, and it tells us that he lodged with them for approximately a year and a half, and he ministered to the church and ministered and debated in the synagogue. And then in A.D. 652, he leaves Corinth and travels with Aquila and Priscilla to Ephesus, and there he spends some time in the synagogue reasoning with the leaders of the Jewish faith. But unlike on many occasions where there was opposition to him, where they didn't want him, where they wanted to stone him, throw him out, he was welcomed. And when he decided to move on, because his desire was to celebrate the feast at Jerusalem, 
They wanted him to stay. But his parting words were that he would return again if God will. And so, at the end of what is termed his third missionary journey, we find Paul returned to Ephesus, and there he stays for approximately two years. Paul's letter to the Ephesians was a letter of encouragement. It was not a letter of revelation, of revealing new understanding. It was not to teach them something new, but it was to remind them of something they already had heard. We don't always like to be reminded. I suppose us gentlemen fall into that category. You know, we say we're going to do something, and somehow we never quite get round to it, and somebody reminds us, not only you said you were going to do it, but the time you said you were going to do it. But yet, we find in Scripture that God reminds us of many things. He knows the feebleness of our being as human beings. He knows that we're prone to forget, that we're prone to uh, not fully appreciate what he is saying at times. Maybe circumstance, situations, pressures, demands upon us, we are inclined to push it to one side or say, well, I'll come to that at a later date. And God comes and reminds us. And I feel very much this is Paul's thinking as he writes to the Ephesian church. For his opening comments to the Ephesians are one of greeting and appreciation for them and their faithfulness and their commitment to the teachings of God. And although it's not in it, I feel very much it could be put in, P.S., just a wee reminder. And then he sets off on the reminding them of certain things. He reminds them of their position in Christ. Aren't you glad you're saved this evening? Aren't you glad you know Jesus as your own and personal Savior? Aren't you glad that when you read the Scriptures and it says about the life of Jesus, about his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, that we're not uh, committing it to an actual fact in history, but we're committing it to reality, that we believe it. Not only do we believe it, but we have acted upon it. Paul reminds them of their position in Christ, that they're chosen by the Father, they are redeemed by the Son. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he reminds them also that their salvation is by grace. For God's word reminds us, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He reminds them of their oneness in Christ that Jew and Gentile, as far as God are concerned, in Christ Jesus, there's no difference. He also reminds the believer of their conduct in the world. He speaks of the different walk, the Gentile walk. He speaks of putting off the old and putting on the new. He speaks of the practical application of their Christian life and experience. He speaks of the wise walk, that of the family, the Christian walk, 
that of putting on the whole armor. I'm just going to pass a comment regarding the wise walk, but it's quite a lengthy subject, but I feel I should comment on it. Paul speaks of the family, the natural family, father, mother, brothers, sisters, and he speaks of and reminds them of their responsibilities. In my years in pastoring, how often I have heard from parents, I've heard from children, various comments. And I thought to myself, but what are you contributing to the family? What are you doing to help within the family? Parents complaining, no, their kids can't get them to do anything. Can't get them to be tidy. Can't get them to do anything around the house. Parents falling out between wife and husband and so on. As pastors, we have all been called at times into this situation. And I feel very importantly that Paul is trying to emphasize the importance of the natural family, but also the responsibility of each member towards the other. Matthew Henry, I feel very much, passes comment on it under duty of care. And he says, the discharge of relative duties as a general foundation, he, Paul, lays down the rule. There is a mutual submission that Christians owe one to the other in the fear of God for his sake, that thereby we may give proof that we truly fear him. Where there is this mutual submission, the duties of all relations will be the better performed. Paul, I believe, was emphasizing that where there's unity within the natural family, it has a benefit for the Christian family, the church itself. And so we come to what I want to focus on this evening, and that is the Christian walk. As has been my custom over more years, possibly than I care to remember, the month of December is given to a time of looking back and looking forward. I look back over the year that's drawing to a close. I weigh up certain happenings and events, and I look forward, God willing, to the year that is about to emerge. And this year was no different. And as I thought of 2012, I thought, well, <clears throat> what will it bring? Will it be better than 2011? Will it be more of the same? Or could it even be worse? And I listened to the politicians. I listened to personal, particular celebrities. And some had mixed ideas. Some were filled with hope. Some were filled with uh, depression and anxiety. And I were reminded of the word of God, which says, where men's hearts fail them for fear. And it was evident by some of their comments, this is where they were. And then I thought, well, <clears throat> that's the world. But what about the spiritual aspect? What about the Christian? And what would God ask of us in 2012? And as I thought on it, I thought, well, maybe it's more outreach. Maybe it's more community activities. Maybe for me, it's preaching more sermons. I was tossing this about in my mind. I was trying to find 
and understand something of what God was going to ask of me, was going to ask of the Christian church in 2012. I wasn't getting any answers from Scripture. I was reading Christian literature. No answer was coming. And for several weeks, this was my desire and my prayer. And then the Lord, I believe, dropped something into my heart. And what he said, what I want the Christian church to be, to do, is to be a good example for me. That's not to say he doesn't want us to be involved in evangelism and outreach and anything else, but that he wants us as a Christian church to be a good example. The media over the past year has highlighted particular celebrities and individuals and they have portrayed them as good role models for the young people of our day. And surely, if anyone should be a role model in the, to the world, it should be the Christian. If any organization should be a role model, it should be the Christian church. Peter, as I referred to, challenges us when he says, what manner of persons ought you to be? What example are we setting? What example are we presenting to the world in 2012? The church has undergone many changes over recent years. Some changes have been good. Some I would disagree with. But nevertheless, change has come for some within the Christian church there has been this desire to be more sociably acceptable. And as such, they have lowered their standard. They have watered down their message. They have, as I say, bent the rules a bit to try and make themselves more socially acceptable. And when you ask why, they say, well, we're trying to make inroads into society. We're trying to have an impact upon the world. And if truth be told, the reverse has happened. They have failed to impact society and the world, but the world has impacted them. Things that were in the world that should have remained in the world have found their way in to the Christian church, sadly. For many Christians, I view them as mix and match Christians. Now, you ladies know what I'm talking about. When you go into a shop, there's a real garments, maybe five, six of them. They all make up an outfit, and you're invited to pick two or three to make up the outfit that suits your taste, that fits your lifestyle, and is what you want. And I feel there are Christians adopt that same attitude when it comes to God's Word. I'll have this. I agree with this. I'm prepared to accept this, but no, I don't want that. And I feel that in 2012, the church needs to rise to the challenge. It needs to regain the ground that has been lost, but not only regain the ground that has been lost, it needs to move forward. It needs to advance and claim new ground for the glory of God. But in order to do that, I believe, as Paul exhorted the church at Ephesus, we need to be prepared. We need to put on the whole armor of God. 
So therefore is the question, how do we put on the whole armor of God? Do we walk into a shop? Do we go down the rail? Do we find our size, go into the changing rooms, and walk out with it on? No, I don't believe that's what Paul is speaking of. I believe Paul, in exhorting the church at Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God, is exhorting them to put on a lifestyle. A lifestyle that is geared, that is directed at serving Jesus. A lifestyle that is in line with what Jesus requires. A lifestyle that pleases Jesus. And so I would like just briefly to look at the whole armor of God. And in so doing, I'll start at the top and work to the feet, not as it's written in the Scriptures. And Paul says in verse 17, put on the helmet of salvation. And the question I pose is this, what does your headdress say about you? I'm reminded of the scene in November at the Cenotaph in London. And during the time of the two-minute silence, the camera draws back and gives you an overall view of those on parade. And all, as you can see, is their headdress. And yet, by their headdress, you can say where the guards are, the sailors are, the airmen are, the army are. You know by their headdress who they are, what they are. You don't have to ask. And I feel very much that our headdress should say clearly who we are and what we are. The question I ask, what does your headdress say about you. I know what mine says about me. It says I not only have read the scriptures, it says I not only know about Jesus coming to Bethlehem on that first Christmas morn over 2,000 years ago. It says I not only know about his coming, but I know about his life, about his ministry, and about his death on the cross, about his burial, and his resurrection. But it says, I not only know about it, but I believe it to be true. It says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Not that he was, but he is the Son of God. And that his death on the cross of Calvary was to pay the price for the sins of the world. And that includes my sin. And I also says that I believe that I was a sinner. As the psalmist said, I was born in sin and shape and iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And in that state, if I left the scene of time, I was heading to hell and a lost eternity. But it also tells that I believe because Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sin. When I came to Jesus, when I said, I believe that you are the Son of God, I believe that you have paid the price for my sin in dying on the cross of Calvary. I believe that I'm a sinner heading to a lost eternity, and I want to go to heaven. So, Heavenly Father, I admit I'm a sinner. I'm asking for forgiveness of my sins. I'm asking you to save me. And Jesus, save me. And on the 2nd of January of this year, I'm 52 years saved. That's what my hot headdress says about me. But the challenge is, what does your headdress say about you? Maybe you'll agree with me that you have taken those steps. 
You've asked Jesus to forgive you your sin. You've asked Jesus to cleanse you and to save you. But then you'll say, well, I say a bit more. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Well, I haven't just gone that far. My headdress says something different. I was reminded of a conversation I overheard. I know you shouldn't listen to other people's conversations, but I was listening. Some Christian young people were talking. They had been in a gathering some time earlier on. There was quite a number of Christian young people there from different churches. And in the course of their conversation that evening, some of the young people discussed how often they went clubbing during the week. And I thought of that, and I thought of how sad. And as I thought on that, what came to mind was the children's poem, The Spider and the Fly. It's humorous, but yet I believe it has something to say to those who are in that situation. We better know it as, step into my parlor, said the spider to the fly, "'Tis the prettiest little par parlor that ever you did spy. The way into my parlor is up a winding stairs, and I have many pretty things to show when you are there. Oh, no, no, said the little fly. You ask me, to ask me is in vain, for who goes up your winding stairs can ne'er come down again. I'm sure you must be weary, dear, with soaring up so high. Will you rest upon my little bed, said the spider to the fly. There are pretty curtains drawn around, the sheets are fine and thin, and if you like to rest a while, I'll snugly tuck you in. Oh, no, no, said the little fly, for I've often heard it said, they never, never wake again who sleep upon your bed. Said the cunning spider to the fly, dear friend, what shall I do to prove the warm affection I've always felt for you? I have within my pantry good store of all that's nice. I'm sure you're very welcome. Will you be pleased to take a slice? Oh, no, no, said the little fly. Kind sir, that, that cannot be. I've heard what's in your pantry, and I do not wish to see. Sweet creature, said the spider, you're witty and you're wise. How handsome are your gauzy wings. How brilliant are your eyes. I have a little looking glass upon my parlor shelf. If you'll step in one moment, dear, you shall behold yourself. I thank you, gentle sir, he, she said, for what you're pleased to say. And bidding you good morning now, I'll call another day. The spider turned himself around and went into his den, for well he knew the silly fly would soon be back again. So he wove a subtle web in a little corner sly and set his table ready to dine upon the fly. Then he came out to his door again and merrily did sing, Come hither, hither, pretty fly, with the pearl and silver wing. 
Your robes are green and purple. There's a crest upon your head. Your eyes are like the diamond bright, but mine are dull as lead. Alas, alas, how very soon this silly little fly, hearing his wily flattering words, came slowly flitting by. With buzzing wings she hung aloft, then near and near drew, thinking only of her bright, brilliant eyes and green and purple hue, thinking only of her crested head, poor foolish thing at last, up jumped the cunning spider and fiercely held her fast. He dragged her up his winding stairs into his dismal den within his little parlour, but she ne'er came out again. And now, dear little children, who may the story read, to idle, silly, flattering words, I pray you'll ne'er give heed. Unto an evil counsellor, close heart and ear and eye, and take a lesson from this tale of the spider and the fly. We may laugh, but it has a very profound warning. I often think of many who I've counselled about their actions, about their lifestyles, about the places they were going and the things they were doing. And it is with sadness that I think of them this evening, for if they could, they would turn the clock back gladly. They were like the fly. They thought there was no harm in what they were doing, in where they were going, in what they were getting involved with. But they found to their cost. For some, they lost their jobs. They lost their homes. They lost their businesses. They lost their marriages, their families. And they are, of all people, most miserable this evening. Paul said, I am a new creature. All things are passed away. All things are become new. You can't keep one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters, for sooner or later you will submit wholly and entirely to one. You know, the course writer, the hymnist says, he lifted me up from the deep miry clay. He planted my feet on the king's highway. And now I'm rejoicing, I sing and I shout, for Jesus came down, praise the Lord, and he lifted me out. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why those who've been lifted out of the mud and the mire, whose feet have been placed upon the rock Christ Jesus, should want to return and wallow in the mud and the mire out of which they have been lifted. Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation. What does your headdress say about you tonight? Does it say I'm saved? I'm following Jesus? Or does it give a mixed message? Then in verse 14, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The question we must ask ourselves as a Christian, we must ask as a church, are we righteous? Are we righteous in all we do, in all we say? I'm not talking in the spiritual aspect about righteousness, for we have righteousness in Christ Jesus, those of us who know him as Savior and Lord. 
within our schools and colleges and universities. Are we righteous when it comes to tests, when it comes to exams, or do we cheat? Do we conceal some little notes and think, well, do you know, I got away with it. Nobody saw me. But I want to tell you, Jesus saw you, and he sees all things. What about those of us in the workplace? Are we righteous? Do we do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay? And if the situation was reversed and we were the employer and somebody else was the employee, could we be happy with the standard of work, the amount of work that was being done? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Many things may be legal according to the law, but are they righteous? Do we do as the world does, or do we do what the world doesn't do? In my working life, I came across many individuals, businessmen, and so on. The hardest witness I ever had was with a man who I knew well, and I was telling about explaining to him about becoming a Christian. And he says, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I wouldn't do what that particular individual Christian businessman does. And I was flummoxed. What do you answer? What do you say? Paul says we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness in our lives, in the things we say, the way we live. We may think nobody sees us, but I tell you, not only does Jesus see you, the world sees us. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then he says that we live as Christians and do what is expected of us. On this subject, I was speaking to a pastor some months ago, and he shared with me the following illustrations, which I will leave with you for your consideration. Christian businessman, he was a developer, and as he got the contracts, he put out tenders, and when they came back, he was amazed, for he knew how many man-hours would be involved in that particular task. He knew the price of materials, the right specification that would be required, and he said, no way could this subcontractor do this job for this price. Either he'll use substandard equipment, or else he'll cut corners. And so he decided he wasn't going to have this. And so what he did was, he worked out the price. He approached the companies. He says, I will pay you this set amount for doing this contract. And when they took on the contract, they knew they were being paid and paid well. And as he testified, he never had any problems with getting workers. He never had any problems with any of the jobs that he tendered out. And there were companies that were breaking their neck to get on his list because they realized hey, he pays better than anybody else. For the developer, he took this stance, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. The world will say, that's madness, paying more than you have to. But he, in his estimation, was living as Jesus would have him live. 
and he put on the breastplate of righteousness. Another Christian man started up a business, oil delivery. He got together sufficient money to buy a couple of second-hand oil, delivery, oil tankers to deliver. But when he started the business, he committed it to the Lord. He says, I'm working eight to five each day. I'm not working on a Sunday. He says, I have a family. I have church commitments. I have Sunday commitments. And that's the hours I'm working. And when the business was closed on an answering service, he had put the fact the business was closed, the hours of business that he'd be open. But he said, in an emergency, if you contact this particular company at this particular number, they will be able to help you. And this went on for several months. And one day the owner of the company that his answering machine was advertising turned up at his office. Unsaved man, he came in, he sat down, and he asked him why. Why are you sending business my way? And the Christian businessman explained and gave his testimony and the reasons. Now, I haven't heard if that man came to faith in Christ Jesus, but I do know this. He sat and cried in the businessman's office. It had an impact upon him that other things hadn't touched him in the past. Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Do we do as the business world does? Do we do as the world does? Or do we do what God expects us to do and what the world doesn't do? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then he says in verse 14, your loins girth about with truth. Truth is a scarce commodity. It's something that the world takes so much for granted. Are we truthful? Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, in chapter 4 and verse 25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. He's speaking to Christians. He's writing to Christians. How often have I heard it said, well, it's common business practice. I worked in a business where customers rang in. They wanted to know where their supplies in. They wanted to know, was their job ready? And I would contact management, and they would say, put them off. Spin them a yarn. Tell them something. At which stage I handed the phone to them, and I says, you tell them. Girth about with truth. Can the world, as Pastor touched on this morning, the words we speak, can they take it as truth? Can they take it as honest? Paul says, if we are to have an impact, we need to not only speak the truth of the gospel, but we need to be true and speak the truth in everyday life. And then he says, verse 16, Take the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. Temptation, we meet it every day in our daily work, wherever we are. We are reminded that we have in Jesus 
the shield of faith wherewith we can resist temptation. We are reminded in Genesis chapter 39 of one who resisted temptation, Joseph. He was tempted by Potiphar's wife, but he fled. He put as much distance between the temptation and him. And yes, he ended up in prison, and we are well aware of that. But he didn't linger. Where temptation was, he made sure he wasn't. How often have I heard it said, there's no harm in having a look. No harm in reading that particular type of material. No harm in looking at that particular type of film. And Christians expose themselves to what they don't need to be exposed to. Paul exhorts the Ephesian church to take the shield of faith wherewith you will be able to resist temptation. And then he moves on in verse 17, take the sword of the Spirit. I almost lost my sermon this morning. <laughs> I was panicking. <laughs> Pastor so brilliantly spoke on the sword of the Spirit this morning. Paul says in Hebrews 4 and 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the only comment I wish to make is this. God doesn't need us to defend his word. God's word will stand. God will guard his word. God will protect his word. He asks us to declare it. I've often seen those who got themselves in such a state I've seen men ready to punch the light, somebody else's lights out because of debate and argument over God's Word. I've been in elders' meetings, and it's been wild. <laughs> but God doesn't need us to defend His Word. He asks us to declare it. Jesus set the example, as Pastor reminded us this morning, that when the devil came, Jesus quoted the word, and the devil hadn't an answer. There was no debate. There was no discussion. Jesus simply said, it is written, and he quoted the verse. We're called to declare the word, but also we are warned to make sure that the word we're declaring doesn't condemn us. And then... In verse 15, Paul speaks of the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemaker, for they shall be called the children of God. Paul writing in Romans 12 and 18 says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Not that we become a pushover in any means. And Paul again writing in Romans 12 and 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. And again in Romans 12 and 20 and 21, therefore if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. 
do we, by our presence in situations and circumstances, bring peace or tension? Do we cause, bring about a calm or turmoil? Do we, as Jesus did, as he stood in the boat in the midst of the storm, speak, peace be still? Can we, do we, have that effect in situations with presenting the gospel, with speaking peace into onto troubled scenes? And then Paul says, having done all, stand. The writer in Proverbs 29 and 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. I would like to take preacher's license tonight and rephrase that and say, where there is no example, the world will perish. The world does not time for God's word. Therefore, they live in ignorance. The challenge for the Christian church, I believe, in 2012 is this. Do we do as the world does? Do we do as the world expects? Or do what we do what the world doesn't expect? The hymnist says, stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high the royal banner, it must not suffer loss. What example are we presenting to the world? 2012, we may arrange many things. We may be involved in many things for the glory of God. But, you know, the truth be told, it's one thing talking the talk. It's another thing walking the walk. As speaking to one man, he says, you know, talk is cheap. It's action I want to see. Where is the evidence? Therein lies the responsibility of each and every one of us. We're standing on redemption ground, those of us who know Jesus as Savior this evening. We are placed upon the rock, the rock Christ Jesus. We are exhorted not only to take our stand, but to lift the banner high. As they say, nail your colors to the mast, raise it high, and say, not only am I saved, not only am I committed to Jesus, not only am I following Jesus, but I'm glad I belong to Jesus. What example are we setting to the world this evening? Maybe there's one in the meeting tonight and you have read the scriptures. You know why Jesus came. You know why he died on the cross. You know all the details, but have yet have not responded to his offer of salvation. Can I remind you tonight that in your unsafe state, you're heading to a lost eternity. There's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no maybes. Good works, charitable deeds, living a good life, they may be commendable, but they will not get, in, get you into heaven. Jesus said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. Paul, in response to the Philippian jailer, when he asked, what must I do to be saved? The answer was plain and simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Friend, tonight, what a terrific way to start a new year. Putting your life in Jesus' hands. Accepting him as your Savior and Lord. If tonight something that has been said, 
something that has been mentioned during the praise and worship, has spoken to you, has resonated with you, then please don't leave this gathering tonight without doing business with Jesus. For the Scripture says, Behold now as they accept the time. Behold now as the day of salvation. Many will say, I'll wait for a more convenient time. And many have never found that convenient time. Many say, I'll wait time on my deathbed. And many don't have a deathbed. Life has taken from them just like that. And if that happened to you tonight, outside of Christ, you're in a lost eternity. My desire, the desire of the leadership of this church tonight is that you will find Jesus Christ. And if you would like some help, like to speak to someone, Pastor Clifford, Pastor David, or some of the ones you've come with this evening who you know are Christians, please take time this evening and do business with Jesus. I don't know what 2012 holds. I have expectations. My mind works overtime at times. It runs wild. But I have great hope for 2012. I believe God's going to do great things for his kingdom. And I believe God's going to save many souls. So let's be open to him. If you need salvation, please don't leave tonight. But do business with God. And as Christians, let us be a good example. That the world will not point the finger at us and say, if he's a Christian, I don't want to be one. They may not read the scriptures. They may not go to church. They could tell you better what the inside of a pub or a bookmaker's shop looks like than the inside of a church. But one thing they will do, they'll read you and I. What are they reading? What message are we sending out? Thank you.